0: Welcome to the bonus series of the Guide for Growth property investing podcast, where we're talking the property investing journey from start to finish. Today, we have a very, very special Guest on the show. It's a bloke from the telly. We've got Darren Palmer, who is regarded as one of Australia's most renowned and influential interior designers. He's a writer, speaker, brand ambassador, and of course, TV personality. You will have seen him on the six-time Logie winning TV show The Block. He's a creator, influencer, and ambassador for high quality products and brands, working with the likes of Carpet Cord and Audi and Meyer and all sorts of things like that. We have a chat to him about styling properties, how people can get the best results if they're selling one of their investment properties or setting up a rental property for the highest possible return. We talked to him about design fundamentals and how a Luddite like even myself can understand how to put a room together and how to get to the point of creating an aesthetically pleasing space. It's an awesome interview with Darren who's very generous with his time and I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of it. Here's Darren.
1: Darren Palmer, thanks
0: for joining me on Geared for Growth.
1: It is my absolute pleasure pleasure. How exciting. The excitement is,
0: I can almost assure you, only coming from one direction and a lot of that direction is coming from our staff here in the office. who are very excited to hear that you're on the show. I think many of them are annoyed that you aren't in the office, but perhaps one day we'll make their dreams come true. Now, Darren, for anyone that perhaps has been living under a rock and hasn't sort of come across you before, where were they most likely to see you?
1: Oh, I don't know. There's this little show that they um, air on channel nine from time to time called the Block. It's a little bit of a juggernaut. It's had seventeen seasons. You might have seen me on one of their fourteen seasons. <laughs> uh, you know, you might know me from that. Yeah. You may know me from such shows as <laughs> such uh, Homemade or you yep. know uh, Reno Rumble. No, I'm kidding. That's yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm the guy from the Block, but I've done a bunch of other stuff too. Yeah.
0: So your first sort of foray in, into TV was that sort of fast paced, you know, competition style renovation stuff. How did you first sort of? get into that world i mean that was your first foray into tv right
1: yeah such a strange story that one it's kind of a you know a little bit ethereal i went to a group goal-setting workshop and there was like 10 of us with like a you know life coach guy and i had to write down a you know achievable attainable quantifiable goal and mine was to gain more pr for my business that's all I wanted. And probably a couple of weeks after that, I got a Facebook message from a friend saying, "Hey, they're auditioning for this show and they want interior designers with, with a couple of years experience and, you know, you should try." And I wanted to do it, but at that stage in my career, I'd had like maybe 3 years experience or so. I'd been published in Bell straight off the bat, like the first job I ever did, I was in Bell. Yeah. And You know, I was like, sweet. And then, you know, I got a bit more press with Bell and I was, you know, called the mood maker for the year and I had some good momentum and it was all very positive. And so... I was aware, very, very aware that, you know, reality TV, TV full stop can be double edged sword. If you perceive well and you do well, then it can be fantastic for you. But all you need to do is see someone on the block like, a you know, you know when a Tyler does a really poor job on the block and don't get asked to come back. That's not good. No. That's not a good thing for your career. Yes. So I was very nervous and I rang a few mates of mine that worked in TV that were on screen. And asked them and and some of them said yes you should do it some said no I rang Neil Whittaker who was the editor of Bell at the time and a friend of mine and I said what do you think should I do it and he said I can't advise you on that you just have to kind of go with your gut and I probably (laughs) Oh gosh, like 2 days before the application shut, I applied. I had a cold, out a flu actually, and I had to do a video like this where it was a recording to the camera and I was all blocked up and I was like, you should do this before the show because, you know, I'm really <laughs> good. And they cast me. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So, I think I was cast probably in December. We started filming on January the 8th, mm-hmm. 2009. And the first day was a it was a cast shoot and the judges were shot on the same day to do the promos. And who should walk in as one of the judges but Neil Whittaker? Ah, so I was like, dude, that's why you couldn't that's tell me that's why you me couldn't advise do me. the show because <laughs> you're already going to be the judge.
0: I thought that was um, interesting. He was really covering his backside but now it's all revealed.
1: That's it. So he was, you know, keeping his cards close to his chest but we started working together. Then he was my he was um, you know my judge and mentor at that stage. And then fast forward a couple of years, and um, we're colleagues um, working shoulder to shoulder as judges on the block. So that's a pretty interesting segue. <laughs>
0: pretty amazing stuff. When it comes to sort of like you as an interior designer, you're kind of working with someone like you for say the mum and dad property investors who were the main people that listen to this show. It's not the sort of situation where they'd be able to sort of say oh you know Darren come and have a look at my you know place in Fitzroy for 660 a week and see if you can zhuzh it up sort of thing but what you do have available to people is is your knowledge your understanding of design and specifically I'm referring to something on your website if you go to darrenpum.com forward slash master series you can see all of your modules there, broken up into things like the language of design space planning lighting color interior finishes when it comes to say an investor that's looking at purchasing their property or renting it out on Airbnb or just coming to say a first open house for for rental applications, what are some of the key things that you think people get wrong in creating that first impression?
1: I think one of the things that people get wrong uniformly, full stop, is something that we do as interior designers routinely is we create a brief or a reverse brief from our primary conversation with a a prospective client. Mm -hmm. So what we'll do is we'll have a conversation, we'll sit down, we'll ask a bunch of questions about mood and style and budget and timeframe and do's and don'ts and inclusions and exclusions and who's using the space and what they use it for and what their ages are. And, you know, this is all conversational. It's not like you sit down with a checklist necessarily, but you could. But if you sit down and you sort of listen, very actively listen to what the objectives are what the constraints are and also listen to what some of the proposed solutions that they may have in their minds then you can really accurately discern what the challenges are and what their objectives are and then you write those things down and you give them back to the client or prospective client and you say my understanding of our conversation and your project is this is that your understanding have i understood it correctly then you formalize that as a document. They sign that document and that document becomes your guideline, your boundary for the scope of works. Mm -hmm. And if they or you divert from that scope of works, then obviously there's going to be costs and implications involved. So if you have a brief that is a written document that you are adhering to and referring to constantly at every decision that you make, then where you intended to end will be where you end. But if you start without the end in mind and you buy a bunch of things that you like without an idea of whether they're going to fit into your budget, timeline, style and mood specifically, but also all the other things in terms of use and amenity and all those other things, then you could end up with a whole bunch of things that are really nice and that nothing works. So I think something that that people do routinely wrongly is they don't write down a written brief for themselves. And then that means that you're basically sailing your ship without a compass.
0: So I was just about to say even though they might not necessarily be engaging an interior designer and I think you know obviously we're going to discuss the value of of doing that but even if they're not doing that it makes sense for them to have a document that they're kind of adhering to because we can all sort of get carried away with the shiny things and go shopping and go oh that's going to be great. Exhibit A and this doesn't work for a podcast. I went to an antique store and bought this enormous bottle of uh, champagne Charlie Piper Heidsek right. It it's in my office it doesn't fit anywhere on a shelf there's nowhere I can find to put that it actually works right it's for people that can't see it it's around about 60 centimeters tall and that's the kind of way that I am with property right like I, I can look at something a finished room and say I think that's that's pretty cool right I know you've done work with like with Audi headquarters right I'm sure I'd walk into that and go this is really banging but to go in there as a cold shell and go what will we do to make this work I would just be absolutely petrified is that a a secret source that only people that are kind of born with your skill can really aspire to or is it something that you can learn? I don't know.
1: I look, I only know what I know and I can only see things from my point of view. So it's all kind of worked out okay for me. But I do think there's lots of things you can learn. There's lots of things you can learn in terms of as I said, writing a brief, having visual reference. Um visual reference in terms of a Pinterest board or a, you know a scrapbook or whatever it is. Those things keep you on track. The issue I think that just described amongst other things is what I like to refer to as paralysis by analysis. Yeah. yeah. So you've got so many choices. You don't know where to start. You've got so many options that you, it, it's overwhelming. But the best thing that you can do, and it comes with defying a brief, is you're setting parameters. You're setting constraints. And those parameters and constraints shrink your choices down to a manageable amount of selections. So, you know, say for example, we're talking about flooring, you know, and you're like, okay, I've got three pets and a 12 year old, for example, like me. Then, what that means for me is carpet. I'm not going to have carpet. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have a hard floor. So, then, is what sort of hard floor do I want? Do I want tiles or do I want boards? Well, I'll want boards. Okay. Do I want engineered boards or do I want a vinyl plank? What's my budget? Okay. I'll go with vinyl plank because it's a lower budget. Okay. Then, what is the mood that I'm trying to create? Is it coastal? Is it uh, country? Is it city? You know, um, and then that shrinks that down into a set of parameters. And then I go, okay, cool, is it oak or gray? Cool, that's gray. So I want a gray vinyl plank that has a coastal feeling. And I want to go to one particular supplier and I will ask them to give me all the options that fit that. And there's probably two or three options. Mm. If you walk into that store, you've got a thousand options. <laughs> but if you know what your constraints are, the, the choices, the decisions that you make become really simple. The Give for Growth property
0: investing podcast is presented by our business MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximise their claims and maximise their property education as well. That's very, very interesting and I think that's really helpful, right? Because I would just walk into a flooring place and go, oh, I didn't plan for it to be there overwhelming i mean sometimes i go to the grocery store and just get attacked aesthetically and just form some sort of paralysis and i was just looking for ketchup you know Mate,
1: that's why i'd get food service to- delivered to my house so i don't <laughs> have to cook and i don't have to shop
0: that's that's sort of where I've been at as well I'm wondering like when you were talking about you know the mood is it coastal is it is it city how do you sort of come to that idea is it based on the sort of the geographical location like so obviously if you're in Byron Bay you're you're not going to be wanting sort of polished concrete city chic sort of stuff does it have to sort of be congruent with the surrounding
1: yeah so there isn't only one solution to any geographic location you know you use Byron Bay for an example I mean polished concrete concrete works perfectly well in Byron, as does Boho, as does white, as does very, very dark. You know, there's lots of different interpretations to that. There's lots of different interpretations to what country looks like. There's lots of different interpretations to what city and apartments look like. But if you are creating a space without a regard for what the geographic location is, and you're trying to force a country aesthetic onto a city apartment or a penthouse aesthetic onto a country home, mm. then you're probably I like to refer to it as like putting lipstick on a pig. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. You're sort of you're trying to tart something up, but what's underneath is still what's underneath. Better off looking at the architecture, looking at the structure, looking at the geographic location, and also Especially, I think it's, it's important uh, if you are an investor or you're planning to sell your property at some point in the five, you know, five to ten year future, that you look at what the market wants and you do some research into what sells in your area, what the finishes and inclusions are in your area, and then you, you know, skew your decisions in favour of something that fits within the market you're sitting in, yeah. because there's no point doing a dream home and then you know god forbid something happens circumstances change you have to sell your property and then you've got no bias because what you're selling in your market doesn't appeal to the buyer that's looking in that market.
0: Especially important for property investors, right, because you're not necessarily going to have the same tenant. You know, at some stage, you're going to want to sell it down the track. Are there any sort of universal tenants that kind of work? Like I remember my mother sort of saying, you know, she's renovated a couple of places. She always goes white appliances. She's like, because, you know, stainless steel could go in and out of fashion, but white is just kind of always classic. Now, I'm not sort of positing her as like a a stockpile, Guru. She's never been on any episodes of The Block. But is there anything like that that is kind of fundamentally always going to be a bankable thing?
1: Very, very good question. I don't know if I agree with your mum's view on white appliances. I could tell um, by your
0: face too. But just, just, just keep it in mind, she uh, gave birth to me and you can tell by my haircut that I've got no sense of style whatsoever.
1: Well, sorry, mum. I'm not questioning your aesthetic by any means. I just, I do think uh, there's, there's longevity in things like stainless steel appliances and a lot of them actually have black glass um, at the moment. So, yeah, look, they're, they're, trends come and go, uh, that's for sure there are things that have more life in them than others. However, I kind of like to think of it like this, like, you know, people get really wrapped up in trends and the big thing about trends is, you know, will it date? Mm. You know, I get, you, you get that a lot. Like, Oh, I don't want to do that. Cause it'll date. And I mean, there's two, two parts to this one. If you're doing a house for yourself and it's only for you to live in and you know, you're going to hold it for at least 10 years, do whatever you want. Mm. Do what, Lights you up, make your carpet pink and put up your walls for all I care. Right. Because in 10 years' time, it's going to need to be replaced. You're going to be selling the place anyway. So make yourself happy. I like to think of it like this like, you know, an art deco building, you know, done late 20s, early 30s is of that era. Mm -hmm. If it's a good example of architecture and interior design of that era, then yes, it's dated, but it's dated to an era and that era has style. Yeah. The 80s came back. Yes. Because there was beauty in that era. So anything where there is beauty, I think, irrespective of whether it comes or goes out of trend, if you look at it through a new sort of contemporary lens, you can find the same essence of beauty from a period and reinvigorate it, which is why we see the 30s come back, which is why we see the 50s or the 70s, the 80s or the 90s come back. The 2000s are coming back. Guys, sorry to tell you, they are. <laughs> I was there the first time. It was very clinical and minimalistic. Minimalism's coming back for sure. Mm. So I wouldn't worry too much about whether something's going to be classic or timeless or go in and out of style. I think it's more important that it's appropriate to the market that you're in. It's appropriate to your needs. It meets your brief. And you know, you're spending the right amount of money to achieve that. So that should something happen in the future that you want to need to sell, or if your objective is to sell, that there is still margin, there's still fat in the property value after you've done any improvements. And I mean, for me, that's all maths. I think of property as as a mathematical equation and it doesn't, I don't think needs to be that hard. I'm not giving financial advice. That is not my forte. But when I do due diligence, what I do is, you know, I look at the value of property as it stands. I research the market in the immediate area with you know, direct comparisons. And then I look at the highest price that, that can be achieved in that market. And you're comparing apples to apples. Then you look at your holding costs, you look at your improvement costs, and then you see what's left over. And people are always you know, concerned about overcapitalization. And that's like a big scary word because it is. It's, it's a stupid thing to do only if you intend to sell it at some point in the future. But if it's your dream home and you sit, you're going to stay there for 20, 30 years. The market will catch up, but you don't ever know what your circumstances are going to be. You don't know that, you know, someone's not going to pass away or that you're not going to lose your job or that interest rates aren't going to rise and you're not going to have to sell this, that property. So I think you're far better served to think about having a saleable property in the market at all times. Yeah irrespective of whether it's just for you or if it's for sale.
0: Yeah, and have that sort of fat in there. If you're wanting to overcapitalise because it's just for you, you've got to have a bit of wiggle room there. I'm really interested in the philosophy of design. Every time I sort of speak to an architecture student that hasn't stuck it out, they sort of say something like, I thought I was going to be designing places, you know, not looking at like, why sort of light is an ethereal sort of concept and how that kind of relates to St Francis Assisi. And there's all sorts of like, philosophical stuff in there. Like, how does a mere mortal think about like, how a building can make a person feel and apply that to a space in a real way?
1: It's really interesting, because that's a that's a really good example of my own experience too. Like, as a school student and as a you know, college student, I studied fine art and you know I sucked at history and I was really bad at geography. I even studied French and I didn't really pay attention. I married a Frenchman, <laughs> so I probably should have paid attention yeah. to that. But frankly, I should have paid attention to all those things because when you have those things in context – And you understand the context of, you know, um, historical periods and the events of those periods and what was happening socially and why people were thinking and acting the way that they were at that time. And then you see how they had an impact on the decisions of whether it was high detail, low detail, lots of, you know, um, intricacy or very pared back, whether it was, you know, utilitarian or if it was overly decorated all that makes sense in the context of history in terms of what was happening um you know in terms of wars and and depressions and periods of exuberance and it all sits perfectly together but if you look at bits of it in, in isolation to each other then you don't have any sense of why it's important to think of art history or interiors history in terms of your modern way of living but the fact is the whole thing is a pendulum that swings back and forth and back and forth. If you understand what makes those people tick at those times, you can see those things happening in society and then you can see what's coming in terms of a trend because we're either heading into a period of exuberance or we're heading into a period of austerity and there's going to be knock-on effects because that's the way people always think so I have no idea if I just answered your question um <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I a little bit uh, your answer that,
0: your yeah. answer is actually more interesting than my question anyway so go with it <laughs> sorry I think I understand you know at the times of, of the dark ages you know we had kind of more brooding architecture right we had gothic arches and it kind of seemed to be fitting of the times and you see some of these television shows like Game of Thrones these are very very kind of dark and moody and foreboding style things and the architecture and, and even the sort of the physical landscape kind of mirrors that, right? So there's a time and place for everything, but you're kind of saying that, you know, it's got to be sort of congruent with the time and that kind of pushes the pendulum as it swings from different trends to different trends. Have I paraphrased you well enough?
1: I mean, it's, it's interesting in that context if you think about like, you know, interior history because it used to be about a period You know, it was, you would have uh, Rococo or Baroque or Art Nouveau or or Art Deco or whatever, right? And they would kind of run one after the other, after the other, after the other. And they would be, one would be a response to or an addition of the one that came before it, or it would swing back the other way away from the thing that came before it. And now that doesn't happen in that sort of horizontal linear way. It happens in a vertically linear way. So you'll have all those things reacting to each other at the same time. Yeah. That's why we'll have seven different trends all at the same time. But some might be high detail, some might be low detail. You might have minimalism on one hand, you might have um, cottage core on the other hand. And often the things that are the external stimulus to make people want a certain thing. That's the perfect example. I love this example at the moment. So like minimalism is about having austere clean sterile spaces yep. right because the world outside is scary and everything needs to be sterile yep. then also there's a thing called cottage core which is like nana's house it's literally nana's house like it is prints and florals and and you know mismatching but this feeling of nostalgia and sort of enveloping you know safety of the of an era a bygone era yep. both those things happen i believe for the same reason Because outside is scary. So inside, you either want it to be as safe and clean, or you want it to be completely enveloping and a total rejection of that sort of cleanliness and uh, sterility of outside. But both are happening at the same time, both happening for the same reason. It's just one's a reaction to it, one's an embracement of it.
0: But they're both kind of sanctuaries from the outside world. I guess, right? Yep, so you, you come in and you kind of, you feel like everything's going to be okay, right? I suppose like you get yeah. that, but you're mere mortal that's not in your world. I suppose the closest they might get to that is if they're looking at <clears throat> open houses or if you go on a, a holiday and you go to your hotel, you open the door and within a couple of seconds, you kind of know whether you're happy in the, in the place, right? So that's really the idea is to create that kind of sanctuary feeling and a sanctuary at one point in time might be that cozy sort of nana style another one might be i want everything sanitized right because everything's filthy out there and we're all going to die of the coronavirus
1: bingo and that you've nailed that's it in a nutshell it is definitely about how people feel and making people feel like they've got a space that reflects them if we're talking about a residential home and reflects their needs and desires but also makes them feel safe
0: Yep, sticking, say, with a a residential property, and if we're looking specifically to property investors that may not necessarily be staging furniture in a space I mean is that enough of a canvas that you can do something that's going to have a real emotive effect to people coming into that space or does it require the soft furnishings and all that kind of filigree work
1: I think you will always get a better emotional response from a buyer if you are telling a story of perfect use. That is one of the things that we talk about on the block and we talk about when we are seeing contestants, especially at the beginning, where they don't necessarily understand the importance of decoration. And I speak from personal experience because I didn't either. When I was starting out, I was very functional. I was very about spaces. And the allocation of space and sort of the built environment and, you know, interior architecture and joinery and all that sort of practical stuff that I thought was very sensible and worthy and much more important than that, you know, flippant cushion stuff. But the truth is Mm -hmm. when you see the reflection of perfect use and the best possible version of your life in a home without somebody else's Life imprinted on it. And by that, I mean no wedding photos, no children's photos. You know, it's a perfectly presented uh, environment that looks like someone who's living the perfect life in that house has just left it perfectly clean and walked out of the room. That will give you the best possible opportunity to paint the property in its best possible light. And sometimes those things are the things that make people buy emotionally rather than sensibly, you know, and it's when you get emotional buyers that you get big price tags.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's the end goal for anyone selling or wanting to rent out their properties to get people emotional about it. That's a really interesting tip where you kind of talked about, it's got to be obvious that somebody lived there at some stage but you want them to be kind of ethereal in and of themselves the perfect family that never have an argument that never spilt anything and then they just kind of disappear into the wilderness because you know they're off skiing in aspen for the next eight years or something and you're moving in you know not this sort of place where it's kind of like that looks like yesterday's cushion and here's a photo of the family that you know they all kind of look a little bit ugly and depressed you want to get that stuff out
1: okay i didn't say anything about ugly and depressed but (laughs) Uh, I see your point. Yeah. And yes, it's about removing the specifics of personality and leaving behind the feeling of character.
0: Yeah. Interesting. I want to know if someone's sort of wanting to undertake this project for themselves, let's say they're, they're looking at, at, at selling a, a property. They've got their Pinterest boards. They're taking your advice and they're giving themselves a little bit of a brief. They've got an idea about what they want to create. What is kind of the next step for them when they're trying to sort of procure the items to put this stuff together like you're obviously plugged into the trends like should people trust themselves to go i think this is really good or should they actually kind of go wait let's just see if the world kind of mirrors that back at me because i could be a little bit weird my pink carpet walls could be a little bit too edgy
1: look i think there's let's break that question apart so the next thing that they should do is plan the entire home they should plan every bit of the scheme, every colour, every bit of paint, every wallpaper, all of the, you know, finishes and inclusions, tapware, like, uh, you know, decorative covers, cushions, beds, all the furniture, every single bit of the house they should plan. And ideally they should source. Then, and I notice I didn't say buy.
0: Right, yes.
1: Right, plan and source. So and once difference? you've done that, then you've got this opportunity to go, okay, well, one, can I afford those things? Two, do they fit in my timeline? But three, do they work together? And if they don't work together, you replace them until you get to a point where you're actually happy with something that looks like it's co- coherent and consistent. And then as your budget allows you, or as things become you know, uh, available or they're on sale, ideally, or you, you, know, you stumble across a bargain, then you can compare them to the things that you've sourced and you found that relate to your visual reference. And then you can flesh out your home knowing what the finished result is going to look like even if you can't achieve the finished result all at once yeah, okay. because it means then you will end up with something as you expected it to look not. I like to think of it like this. You know, like, you know, those when you're a kid, like someone would draw the head and you'd fold the paper down, then someone would draw the body and you fold yeah, the paper yeah. down and someone draws the legs. Yeah. You don't want that. You want to have planned the whole drawing. And even if you just shade the eyes and then you have to draw a hand later, you know, once you've finished the whole thing, it's going to look like a person. Yeah.
0: So I want to kind of wrap up with some practical advice for for people at home, because you clearly have a, an interesting head in that there's two hemispheres that are both firing on all cylinders I think most people their whole lives will maybe be sort of 90% one and and 10 the other or you know if they concentrate really hard they might up it a little bit but you kind of seem to be able to be kind of mathematical and organized and you know like you know your Gantt charts right man after my own heart but then you can also look at something and and with an empty space go if I put these things here it's going to look fantastic now that I cannot understand at all, so for the fear, the mere mortals, can can you give us a couple of tips to putting a project together? And and let's just say, as an example, they have a house they're wanting to stage it to sell the property because they've got another investment opportunity, or they're they're in the sort of the sell down phase of their investing portfolio.
1: Yeah. Know your market, know who you're selling to, and know what they want. So that means doing due diligence, look at what is selling them in the area and what is selling at a premium, what's selling quickly, and then look at the finishes and inclusions in terms of furniture as well as a built environment in those homes. Use that as your guide, then do that in your house, right? That would be number one. Number two, expensive does not mean good, and cheap does not mean bad. And you can do a lot with reclaimed or wholesale or factory outlet or, you know, warehouse sale stuff, right, where you're not really spending a lot of money on some of the more common or big ticket items and then you add in some things that have some wow factor that you probably want to spend some money on. So perfect example My place in Suffolk Park, in Byron, pretty much the whole place is discount or warehouse sale stuff, right? With the exception of a mirror and a coffee table. The mirror was expensive and the coffee table was expensive. When I say expensive, I don't mean $20,000, I mean $1,200, but still expensive compared to what you could spend in a house. But those two things really anchor the spaces and give you something that's dramatic and transformative in the home and elevates the level of all of the less expensive or more value items in the home so that your perception is at the level of the most expensive thing if you do it right then you can elevate things with good expensive choices and if you do it right you can make it look fantastic without having to spend a lot of money so that would probably be number two number three is decor and soft furnishings art rugs all of those things they speak of personality they speak of perfect use and they also serve the purpose of tying things to get together visually so that you've got a coherent feeling and a coherent look across a home and the easiest way to make something look consistent and look coherent is by linking it together with soft furnishing and decor
0: now that you've said that i'm actually looking at this coffee table in question right and i could look at this room that you've done and go yeah that looks good darren's nailed it couldn't do it myself but you've actually kind of explained well this is like a slightly more expensive piece right you've got a really beautiful looking lounge you've got a shit ton of cushions i've got to say (laughs) <laughs> they all look pretty good, right? Cushions are a thing. I've never quite understood yeah. that. They're just kind of in the way of a place that I need to be. But you've got... So practical. Yeah, yeah I know. That's why I apologize before we went on air. I'm the wrong person to be interviewing you, obviously. <laughs> but I can see on the coffee table you've got what looks like sort of like a white coral-y style uh, thing, but there's also kind of something on the side table as well that kind of ties that in together. There's a continuity amongst sort of separate pieces. So that's actually quite helpful for me personally to have you kind of explain that because it just sort of seems like a magic art, but that's really interesting.
1: If you want to break it down to a simpler, more digestible theory, it's part of a larger interior's um, fundamental theory. But complement and contrast, the two things, the most simple to understand and the most necessary to repeat for a great room. So complement means having something in your line of sight to tie something to another item. And for example, you would have a large mass of something. So say it's a white coffee table with a sort of, you know, slightly coastal feeling. And then you might have a smaller element, like a cushion that has the same sort of color and feeling. And then it might be an even smaller element like that, like a small piece of coral, for example. So it's that complement tying a large chunk to a smaller chunk to a smaller chunk in the same line of sight that makes something feel like it's coherent. If you don't have contrast, though, you will often run the risk of something feeling blah and same same samey without any interest. So contrast is about adding black where you have white, adding, you know, rough where you have smooth, adding light where you have dark. It's the contrast of materials, contrast of colors, contrast of shapes, contrast of patterns, anything that will give you something that is other than the overarching sort of overwhelming sameness of a room. That's what gives you a sense of interest. Mm. So, those two things, if you get one thing out of our conversation, conflict and contrast, super easy to understand and super super important
0: that's excellent i appreciate you um breaking that down even further and perhaps it's helpful that i am a blundering idiot because you've had to dumb it down to me right
1: (laughs) mate i dumb it down to my level don't you (laughs) worry
0: i can see that the coral the white coral is sitting on a darker thing you talked about smooth and rough i can see you know you've got contrasting colored pillows and one's got a real kind of rough kind of texture to it everything that you're explaining is in that particular room so that's really interesting so
1: once you see it you can't unsee it right
0: exactly you've kind of lifted the veil and who knows (laughs) maybe there's a new career in interior design for me god help the world Uh, he's he's gunning for me (laughs) (laughs) darren it's been a, a sincere pleasure thank you very much for sharing your time and your wisdom and your tips today
1: it's been my absolute pleasure thanks for the chat
0: Cheers.